Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we're going to be discussing Christianity, but more specifically, the neglected aspect of Christianity, its impact on the development of Western civilization. Now, I say neglected because it has been fashionable, and I agree that I have been guilty of this as well, to bash Christianity as a series of fairy tales that are no longer relevant for the world that we live in. We've had discussions on the show in the past about Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson's debates on the meaning of, of myth and the importance of sacred in the development of a person individually and of society collectively, and whether or not you can even have a functioning society without an idea of the sacred or of myths that tell us what the sacred is and how to value it. Now, that said, this uh, in just the past couple of weeks with the burning down of the, the Notre Dame Cathedral, we saw a display, I'd say, of this these two different ways of viewing Christianity. Uh, right in the aftermath of the cathedral burning down, we saw an outpouring of grief and sympathy for what the cathedral represented, um, the efforts of the individuals who built it, the love that they put into building it. And, but then we also heard cries of how unfair it was that so much money was being spent to rebuild it when much of that money could be spent instead on the poor the imp and the impoverished. Now, I'd say that obviously those two things aren't mutually, mutually exclusive. You can have a, an outpouring of grief and sympathy and money to rebuild a cathedral, and you can also have a care for the impoverished and for nature in general. But this is, a, this is typical of the stance that I think that we come across when we discuss Christianity or when we discuss the church and the role that is played in the West is whether it's viewed from more of a Marxist perspective, that it is just a source of oppression and has been holding back you know, the, the West in terms of science and, progressive and uh, progressivism and liberalism, or whether we should just get down to good old family uh, tradition and return to the Bible, and then all of our you know, social ills will be mended. Now, that said, we've been reading a really interesting book by the sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark. His book is called The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and Western Success. Now, that title in and of itself seems very, yeah, right in your face. Quite a revisionist history, if you've ever heard of one, but it raises up a whole slew of questions. And through reading the book, it you know you notice that you are you know in many ways you're knee-jerked, thinking, "No, there's no way that Christianity could have had such an impact." You know this you know part of you just is that's indoctrinated in this in this system that views Christianity as backward and oppressive thinks in terms of Christianity as being the uh, Dark Age religion. You know, it's a time when superstition and myth ruled uh, Europe, and there was no technological innovation until, you know, 18th, 16th, 17th, 18th century revolutionaries were, you know, fought against the church, fought back against all of these backwards fairy tales. But he, he makes a very, very compelling case throughout the book that, it, in fact, the Christian belief system has at its core some of these foundational, what we would take now as common sense ideas of the world that led, that were the genesis to the creation of science, to the idea that individuals should have liberty and that they should be free, to the fight against slavery that persisted for centuries, and to the idea that government should be held accountable to the people and that, in fact, it, a tyrant is not sanctioned by God, but that the people have the right to take down a tyrant if he is corrupt and sinning against nature. Now, we'll get into uh, many different, you know, how this argument plays out and some of the historical specifics, but I think that it, one of the best places, really, to start to examine this, how it is that Christian beliefs could possibly be responsible for some of the for some of the best things in life that for that we take for granted today is to look back and identify the beginnings of Christianity to look back and see when it emerged on the world stage and what the culture it emerged into looked like and how exactly this 
differed from the previous culture. That way you can see the genesis, you can see the matrix that was forming at that early stage. And there's no better place to do that than with the life of Paul. And I know Harrison knows quite a bit more about Paul than I do, but just looking at the, his Christian ethos, he didn't really have a, a conception of Christ as we do get in the Gospels. You know, he didn't have an idea of Christ, you know, crucified in a physical way. You know, for him, Christ was much more of a, of a God figure, a supernatural figure that was crucified. And his crucifixion that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus was an experience of the sacred that was, that was radical in a, in a, it was a radical and revolutionary break from the life and times of other Greco-Roman religious or religions, because for most Greco-Roman religions, it was mostly they didn't even have a word for religion. You know, there wasn't any idea that you could belong to a tribe and then also have the religion of another tribe. If you were in a tribe, you were just part of that ethos. You had that character of that tribe. You know, every tribe had a different character. And if you wanted to adopt the rituals of another tribe, which what we would probably say would be their religion, then you were committing uh, a grave sin against that tribe. You were basically, you know, excommunicating yourself. Separation of church and state was stipulated by Jesus when he said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And it was in the city of God the book, The City of God, by St. Augustine, that he wrote that while the state was essential for an orderly society, it was still not in and of itself legitimate. It didn't have any legitimacy outside of the legitimacy given to it by God. Uh, he wrote, What are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men. It is ruled by the authority of a prince. It is knit together by the pact of the confederacy. The booty is divided by the law agreed on. If, by the admittance of abandoned men, this evil increases to such a degree that it holds places, fixes abodes, takes possession of cities, and subdues people, it assumes more plainly the name of a kingdom, because reality is now manifestly conferred on it, not by the removal of covetousness, but by the addition of impunity." So you see here this distinctly anti-government, in fact, revolutionary spirit within the church by one of the great you know, doctors of the church, St. Augustine. And this was not an anomaly either. And from the beginning, since the fall of Rome, he argues in his book, Rodney Stark, it was, it was an apocalyptic event. True. The fall of Rome was an apocalyptic event for most peoples, but it, was actually, it actually led to a great outpouring of technology, of innovation, and of thought that led people to, over the course of many centuries, while they were rebuilding their country, their countries, their respective countries, and within the bosom of the Christian church, nourished by a Christian mythos, to develop these ideas that were anti-imperial and revolutionary and more geared towards the impoverished, more geared towards the cherishing of the free will of, of individuals, which, you know, was really unheard of in Greco-Roman times. You know, you, for, you know for, ex uh, for example, Aristotle believed that slavery was a necessary evil just because if there were no slaves, then, I mean, who's, how are we going to just sit around and write philosophy? You have to have slaves for that. But it was radically different for the Christian theologians and the lay people of that time that even though slavery was reimposed across or was imposed across Europe after the fall of Rome, just because Rome had many slaves, but just they didn't have the military anymore to enforce slavery. But slavery sprung back up. But it was Christian theologians who, who saw that if we were all brothers in Christ, then it was a moral imperative to free slaves. And so then the church began to give the sacrament to slaves. And by doing that, by conferring this Christian ideal on slaves, they universalized mankind. And in many ways, that in and of itself led to a breakthrough in terms of how people viewed not only one another, but the world itself their relations with one another. And just as Paul said, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, and I can't remember the rest of it, but free nor no slave. free, no slave in Christ. You know, that's, that was the foundational ethic that made for a, 
it made it impossible to view the world in parochial and tribal ways that we see a resurgence of now. And we obviously see it as a negative, as a step backwards. But in large part, this universalization of consciousness and of bestowing on all people the right of being a, a human being was a, at, fundamentally in the West a Christian, uh, a Christian fruit, a fruit of Christianity. Well, in the, like when you, from the perspective of someone like living today, um, I think like you said at the very beginning, like we tend to look back on the past as being the source of all evil, essentially. So we look back at our, at our Christian history and tend to think um, that all of the evils of either the present or past evils were a result of, let's say, Christianity. And so there's this tendency to to see the even the present in terms of the past, but in terms of that negativity. So if the church was responsible for all of those past evils, uh, it's also, you know, it, it, bears the, it bears the sins of its fathers, essentially, and it is still a force for, for evil because of that. But it's, it's really a, a simplistic way of looking at uh, history in general, because like at, at every, in every time period, like in the present and at, in every previous present, like it's not like any period of time was strictly completely evil. Like there was like the, there was no good that came into the world in any in any past epoch, but so when we, I think it would be charitable, uh, you know, to use a a Christian phrase to look back at the at history and to try to you know tease out and separate the wheat from the chaff and look well wh what really was going on like what were the positive and negative developments so of course you know we're all familiar or at least. Um, somewhat familiar, even if just on the surface, of some of the, you know, the, the evils of the past. So if we think, well, the first things that come to my mind, if I'm thinking of, okay, evil Christianity in the past, so you've got like the, you know, the Inquisition and the Crusades, you've got um, imperial, like Christian rulers um, enforcing um, or, you know, spreading the gospel at the, you know, with the sword, essentially, and gaining converts and taking over and conquering people and, um, and then the just the entire weight of that like imperial totalitarian kind of top down structure of of government and control over and hierarchical society you you get just a it's essentially like the the patriarchy or how the how the feminists think of the patriarchy right it's this monolithic um bad thing but look at the at the positive developments so you mentioned like slavery well it was Christians primarily who abolished slavery and the reason like you said was because within the Christian dogmas there is uh, an implicit and often um, even explicit universality in the <clears throat> in the uh, in the ethics in the morality so you go back to Paul that famous quote from Paul like if you read Paul one of his letters was uh, the shortest one in the in the, the Pauline corpus, the epistle to Philemon. And this is a letter to like a, well, it's addressing a slave, um, like a runaway slave. And at no point does Paul like say that slavery is a bad thing, but it like there's, there's still within Paul's approach, this implicit um, attitude that would later um, like when looked at, like you can read Paul and see, well, you know, he, he may not have, um, denounced slavery, but it's implicit in what he's writing. You can see how later generations would read texts like those in the New Testament and say, oh, well, you know, maybe slavery isn't such a good idea because this slave was, Onesimus, I think was his name. Um, I can't remember for sure, but basically it translates as useful, I, I think. Like that was the, the slave name, useful slave, essentially. And like he, slaves were accepted as Christians. So it wasn't this exclusive thing, like, you know, there's neither free or, nor slave, that everyone was the same. Everyone had the same status within that, uh, that new identity group, the new Christian community. And so even if at points, um, you know, some passages in Paul might seem exclusive, because they were at the time, it's like he still created a, a group, you were either Christian or you weren't Christian, it was, but the but the new group was inclusive in a way that 
you know, all other groups were not because he did have this kind of uh, like revelatory, like transformational experience. I'd, I'd think of it in terms of like Dabrowski, this positive disintegration where, you know, all, all the old way, the, well, the, the old Paul and the old ways in which he saw the world and saw himself kind of disintegrated and this, this, new, this new Paul came about, which he kind of identified with Christ. And, um, and so like in this transformation, you can see it as kind of like a, a rejection of not only his past self, but a rejection of like everything bad he saw in the, in the options available at the time. He, he was basically creating a new option, a new, a new way of um, like approaching a new way of seeing the world, of seeing the self and seeing the community. And that, that the, the, the universality implicit with it within that actually is what has led to so many positive developments, you know, over the past 2000 years. Of course, there have been negative developments like there always are, but, you know, we have to give credit to the, to the positive too. So, um, so with the, like the abolition of slavery, it's like the, there are movements, you know, they start in Europe essentially. And like, uh, so you, you, there's often, well, to, to kind of broaden the conversation of like, from uh, strictly speaking Christianity to just like Western civilization, there is a, especially in like the, the, the left and like university, university academic critiques of Western civilization, there isn't really an, an, an acknowledgement that actually some good things came out of Western civilization too. Like it hasn't all been imperial bloodlust and conquering and etc. cetera. They're like the, the West actually were the ones to abolish slavery. And, um, so you never really see that brought up as a point. It's like, well, yes, like in the United States, for instance, yes, there were, there were slaves. And that was a bad thing. And everyone kind of acknowledges that. But how many people really acknowledge the fact that slavery was abolished? It's like, uh, and how, like, to, to, to realize like how, what a remarkable thing that actually was. To, to think that there was this, uh, like the slavery as an institution was around for millennia. Like as far back as as you look in in like so-called civilization, like since since ancient Near East times, it's like there has been there have been slaves and there has been slavery and everyone has enslaved everyone else and people have enslaved e the, like each other too. It wasn't like a it wasn't always race based and uh, well it was often like a, it was a, well like in Rome for instance like there were Roman slaves slaves in the Roman Empire. And then there were the slaves, like that, uh, from the conquered peoples. Anyone could be a slave, given the the right circumstances. And but, like, who ended that, and and why did it end? So you 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 go back to the the ideas in in Christianity, and th there is this idea of of this universality in in Christ, as they put it, as Paul put it. So there, th what what happens is like when a new a new value like that, a new idea gets introduced into like the, you know, the, just the, the, the history of, of thought and of, of ideas and, and ideas in practice. It's like that kind of permeates to the point where you're always going to get, um, like, uh, you know, people, you're always going to get negativity and evil and ideas perverted for, for ulterior aims. But when a new, when a new, idea gets introduced it's like that that permeates and then it's like so now you've got this this idea spreading of everyone has value and you, so i don't know you you need some you need someone to first of all say it and then through the spread of this religion it's like then it gets it gets propagated throughout uh, throughout history and through time right Right. Well, how are those debates that you see Jordan Peterson engaging in with uh, people like Sam Harris? I mean, they're usually framed in this idea of, do we really even need the sacred? And then, and then the people debating Jordan Peterson will define the sacred as a bunch of silly stories, you know, and then you, so then you're kind of left with this there, you, you see them and they're like, why does he think that we need a bunch of silly, stupid stories? I can't believe that he thinks we need stupid stories. But what Jordan Peterson is saying that, you know, I mean, obviously nobody wants, nobody thinks that we need to keep every stupid story that has ever been written and to base our lives around that. But the thing is, is that's not what's at stake here. What we're talking about with the sacred is, I mean, clearly these people have never experienced anything like the sacred. And most of us probably never will, especially to the level that we're talking about here with, you know, St. Paul and, you know, monks and mystics and all these people having experiences that radically changed their value system in ways that they viewed the world 
completely differently. And they and it it wasn't when they when they experienced the sacred, it created a a psychic shift that led them to live their lives in a way that was better. And, you know, and they provided meaning to the lives of other people. So in that sense, I mean, do you want meaning in your life or no? I mean, that's what I arguably that's at the core is what a lot of these people are looking for when they're, you know, seeking the sacred. And so, and on that level, of course, of course we need, we need the sacred, but something that we don't really talk about very much is how, how we view the sacred in terms of like belief systems and how important belief systems are and, and what our individual and personal beliefs about the universe are in terms of the effects that we have on others and, and on, and in the lives of other people. Um, just, just for, you know, example, in, in Christianity, the idea, the belief that, that uh, we all sin, correct? And that we have the personal responsibility to stop sinning was a big shift in terms of how people viewed uh, their own personal responsibility. It placed personal responsibility and actually the individual at the center of you know political thought and and you know religious thought and how we, we viewed you know whether we should feel guilty about you know doing this or that and our relationship with the divine because. Um, you know, in Christianity, this this problem of how we how we're supposed to how we're supposed to orient towards the universe, how we're supposed to orient towards you know the sacred, was solved by the idea that okay, so yes, life is miserable and it's full of pain and suffering, as everyone ev under the sun knows, and. As Zizek pointed out in that debate with Jordan Peterson, it gets so bad that even Christ himself on the cross can become an atheist and renounce his own religion. He is God incarnate, and he can become an atheist. But at the same time, the the belief, you know, this image, this imagery, this belief in a in a cruciform God, a God that is dies and is resurrected. Provides provide seem to provide such a you know it's a it's a it's a, trans, a radically transformative image that when you believe in it, it it makes it seem like anything is possible. You know that yes, life is suffering and it's horrible, but there is hope in striving. You know you and bearing your cross, so to speak, and the, at the core of it, you know I think that was what what made what spread what caused Christianity to spread so rapidly was because. It did solve this tragedy in of existence, and it did it in a way that you know you you can't just dismiss it as a fairy tale, as a group of fairy tales, because at its very core, it is a problem, and it's a, you know it's like Peterson would probably say it's like a problem of problems, as at its very core. And then Christianity, and this is one of the themes in Ronnie Stark's book, is that by solving this problem, it freed up the energies, the intellectual energies for. Um, for countless individuals to begin solving other problems. Mm -hmm. to, and then, you know, arguably this then led to the development of a very robust theology, which is what Rodney Stark says was critical in the development of science. Because it was this theology that placed God, the ultimate intelligent designer, so to speak, at, outside of creation, but all of creation was his secret. He had secrets everywhere, you know? So you, no matter where you looked, if you investigated, you could come up with a rational understanding of why God did what he did. And this was the foundational hypothesis of science. That was, you know, that was the hypothesis that, okay, so we can do science because the universe is rational because God created it and God is the ultimate rational being. And it's not just Rodney Stark who said that. I've got a quote here from Alfred North Whitehead, a philosopher that we've talked about quite a bit. Um, he he shocked his uh, audiences in 1925 when when he said that uh, the greatest contribution of medievalism to the formation of the scientific movement was the inexpugnable belief that there's a secret, a secret which can be unveiled. And how has this conviction been so vividly implanted in the European mind? It must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God, conceived as with the personal energy of Jehovah and with the rationality of a Greek philosopher. 
Every detail was supervised and ordered. The search into nature could only result in the vindication of the faith in rationality. So clearly, I mean, you know, like Newton, Kepler, Galileo, all of them regarded creation itself as a book. Everyone viewed it as a clockwork mechanism. Mm -hmm. This obviously is, you know, one of the main reasons why we have such a, me a mechanistic view of the universe today. But it's just because we didn't, nobody felt, you know, after a couple centuries, you're like, well, there's no God out there. We didn't find God. But that just reflects the degeneracy of your overall worldview, you know, kind of a, a forgetfulness of the history of the, you know, the original hypothesis. It wasn't set out to, you know, find God in the universe. It was just finding out how, how God created the universe and what it was that you knew the laws were there. And as that moves forward in time, you're naturally, as you become more intelligent and, and you, you know, you, you, you go on to greater and greater questions, greater and greater problems that don't require a belief in God. And so then we get to this, this problem that we have today where now our God is this, you know, abstract theorizing about how the world works, you know, abs believing in our own abstract statements. And I think that, you know, just reading about the history of Christianity and how the religious problem led to the scientific problem provides a bridge over that impasse. I have, you know, I don't know what that bridge is <laughs> personally, but it just seems to me that, you know, there's a nut, there's there's a way out when you know where where the problem came from, what what problem everyone's trying to solve with these abstract theories, and then you know there's there's some way forward through that impasse. But well, you know it's it's interesting to hear you uh, frame the the problem in terms of a bridge, as though um, you know, and I think one of the answers to the the, the bridge question, what is going to bring us forward, uh, is like you were saying, Corey, it's a it's a reverence for the sacred. It's a it's a look to those things that are part of the mystery, part of uh, what is higher than ourselves in the universe. It's a it's a reverence, a humility um, for uh, things that we don't understand, and a, a deep rigor uh, and uh, into the um, into the questions that we're asking. Uh, but also a kind of adherence to knowing what we know, um, at, at least at a very kind of basic moral and ethical level. Uh, you mentioned Jordan Peterson. Um, I see him as a kind of a, you know, Stark is, the parts of the book that I read, what he, what he does is he cites uh, famous people, um, theologians, um, scientists, uh, royalty, who, who have done their little part in their corner of their position to carry forward, um, if not the letter of Christianity, then the spirit of it. And um, in, in looking at some of this, you know, you, you come to realize that Western civilization, as we now experience it, um, at, at least in, in large part, um, all the successes that, that have been achieved have been, uh, they're, they're kind of invisible. We take them for granted. We don't realize where they, where they have come from. So like you were saying earlier, Harrison, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you think of historical Christianity, or at least one of the, a couple of the things that loom large are all the destructive ways in which Christianity has been used in the, in the name of uh, wielding power, uh, the Crusades and, um, and, and other such things. But there is this kind of invisible structure of, of rationality, of achievement, of goals uh, that have been met by people who had this higher reverence for things. Um, there's one passage in Stark's book uh, in a chapter called The Rise of Individualism uh, that was quite interesting and could have been written by Jordan Peterson him, you know, himself, I, I felt. Uh, the book was written in 2005. So I think it, I think it speaks um, quite clearly to the fact that these ideas are not just Peterson's interpretation of 
of the values and the uh, the moral compass that Christianity uh, has provided for people. Um, well, let me just read it here. It, it says, from the beginning, Christianity has taught that sin is a personal matter, that it does not inhere primarily in the group, but each individual must be concerned with her or his personal salvation. Perhaps nothing is of greater significance to the Christian emphasis on individualism than the doctrine of free will. If, as Shakespeare wrote, the fault is, quote, in ourselves, end quote, it is because we believe we have the opportunity to choose and the responsibility to choose well. Unlike the Greeks and Romans, whose gods were remarkably lacking in virtues and did not concern themselves with human misbehavior, other than failures to propitiate them in an appropriate manner. The Christian God is a judge who rewards virtue and punishes sin. This conception of God is incompatible with fatalism. To suggest otherwise is to blame one's own sins upon God, to hold that God not only punishes sins, but causes them to occur. Such a view is inconsistent with the entire Christian outlook. The admonition quote, go and sin no more, end quote, is absurd if we are mere captives of our fate. Rather, Christianity was founded on the doctrine that humans have been given the capacity and, hence, the responsibility to determine their own actions. St. Augustine wrote again and again that we, quote, possess a will, end quote, and that from this it follows that whoever desires to live righteously and honorably can accomplish this. Nor is this view inconsistent with the doctrine that God knows ahead of time what choices will be made. Writing in refutation of Greek and Roman philosophers, Augustine asserted both that God knows all things before they come to pass, and that we do by our free will whatsoever we know and feel to be done by, by us, only because we will it, but that all things come from fate we do not only because we will, I'm sorry, that all things come from fate, we do not say. Nay, we affirm that nothing comes to pass by fate. While God knows that we will freely decide what we will freely decide to do, he does not interfere. Therefore, it remains up to us to choose virtue or sin. Again, this is, you know, if, if, if you've been listening to uh, Jordan Peterson and his underlying message, um, he has extracted the, I think, one of the core messages of, of Christianity. And you don't have to call yourself a Christian or, or um, uh, identify with the, uh, the trappings of the, the religion to acknowledge that these are very useful and valuable um, rules to live by. Um, so that, that was one thing that impressed me. The book was written in 2005, and clearly there, there does appear to be a through line, a line of force that, uh, that we can see being um, rebirthed and resuscitated by Peterson today. Well, since this is a show on Christianity, I'm going to just play devil's ad- advocate for a minute here. So, um, like myself, not having read the book, I'm interested to, well, I'm interested to, to know more about it, maybe even read it one of these days. But I'm wondering whether... Maybe you guys can tell me. Is his point that um, that Christianity is responsible for all these great things, or that uh, basically the Christian ideas were compatible with some of these ad- like advances um, that we see? Because like so far, a lot of these ideas, like the um, well, except uh, you know, maybe maybe the sin one is an exception. Um, I don't know enough about you know different uh, different you know, belief systems and, and, you know, ancient kind of philosophies to, to be able to say. But it seems to me that a lot of the ideas are just as compatible with other systems too. So like the, there's the, the this is the example I'd give. So with the advancements of, the advancement of science and the, the kind of birth of the kind of scientific, um, um, like practice um, within the Christian era, that, uh, Christian theology and the development of Christianity, uh, Christian theology was basically consistent 
with those aims, with searching, like with seeing the ordered universe and then discovering that order and understanding it and, and putting it in a, in a system where everything fits and everything kind of, everything fits together in an, or, in an orderly mass, in an orderly manner and makes sense essentially. But the Greeks were doing that too. Like in the Greeks weren't Christians, like uh, the whole idea of, of Greek philosophy was to create a system that would explain everything and, and, and no, uh, you know, no, branch of what we'd call science today and no 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 kind of interest was off limits so you had math and biology and physiology and and uh physics and moral theory and theology like all of these things were valid topics and the the goal was to create a system in which all of them kind of um were in which all of them fit and which they in, in which they didn't contradict each other so the idea was to, to was to create this speculative like metaphysics this cosmology, this system in which not only um, the the study of those made sense, but the things being studied themselves made sense and all fit together. So um, the way I kind of see it now is that you know it wasn't so much Christianity that made that possible in the in the later rise of like the scientific uh, scientific giants, you know, like Newton and Galileo and all of them. It's that uh, it was just a, a compatible you know belief system. It wasn't Christianity per se. It was just that Christianity, you know, as it had developed, um, also allowed those things to be possible, whereas they were previously possible, you know, in the in the system of Greek philosophy too. And so, um, and even with um, like the, in that quote, he talked about like the I think the the Roman and, and Greek philosophies, and like like when we talked about um, like Paul and the Stoics, like there's a lot of similarity between Paul and Stoicism, for instance. So. So you could take a, a philosophy like Roman Stoicism and um, and come to a lot of the same conclusions. It's just that Stoicism didn't become like a major religion like Christianity did. Like Christianity had the advantage of taking a, of if not actively taking that's debatable. I I think it did. Like Paul, I think Paul did to some degree. Like you know, adapt some Stoic ideas, but. Um, the, the advantage that Christianity has had would it, it was that it took this kind of more abstract system of like a philosophical school and turned it into this community-based thing, more of what we today would call a religion, and that kind of that allowed it to spread as a you know a cult at the time, where um, you know you you become Christian and then you your friend likes you and your friend says oh well I like this guy and and maybe I'll become a Christian too. And that's, in another of Rodney Stark's books, The Rise of Christianity, that's actually, that's actually how he argues that Christianity spread, is um, because that's how conversion happens. It's through family and, and f- friendships that you make. It's not like, um, um, he actually argues that the, the rise of Christianity wasn't this great miracle, like, like the, a lot of Christians today would, would say that, oh, Christianity couldn't have become the religion it is today without some great miracle to allow its, its rapid spread. And he says, well, no, he actually looked at the statistics and the, like the math and said, well, it's perfectly possible that it spread just through the mechanisms that we know, um, by which we know conversion happens, which is um, friendships and, and family connections, essentially. And, uh, you know, he gives the example of like the Moonies and how the, how the Moonies um, rose and expanded in the United States, and it was basically one missionary comes over, lives in this, you know, basically rents a room in this lady's apartment, and then that lady and her friends all converted, and everything spread from there. It wasn't it wasn't active um, proselytizing, you know, going door to door to get converts. It was actually the the converts came from the the personal relationships that developed. So um, so maybe now you guys can answer my question: Is like is he in the in the camp that um, like? It was specifically Christianity that made all these things possible, and without Christianity, none, none of this would have happened. Or is he more in the camp of like, well, it just so happened that Christianity allowed for a lot of these things to happen that might have happened otherwise. No, he's definitely in the camp that it's Christianity, especially specifically Christian theology, that made all of things, all of these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that it's because because Christian uh, theology was compatible with capitalism. And science and all of these different things, and I was I was uh, credulous too when I first uh, read the book. So I was also reading uh, uh, Toby E. Huff, a historian, his book, "The Rise of Early Modern Science," and you know, and, and going through other materials and source notes, and finding that a lot of um, a lot of people are kind of at this at this 
at the same, not at the same thought that, that theology made this possible, but they're facing the same problems when they're trying to explain why science didn't rise during Greco-Roman times, why science didn't rise in China, why science didn't rise in Islam, why was it that Western Europe uh, created science? And so Stark's hypothesis is that it was Christian theology that made it possible because this very robust theological argument that God created the universe, you know, for one thing, that it, God created the universe, set it like a clock, and then made it run, um, was completely different from other conceptions of the universe. You know, for example, you know, Greco-Romans, you know, they believed that there was, you know, forces like living beings in, in the skies, and that the universe itself was kind of distinct from, from the gods, that the gods themselves were subject to the vicissitudes of fate and that there wasn't some there wasn't really an art uh godhead and but just you know the theology was was one part of it but another aspect of it was like we were talking about individualism free will and this kind of sense of universal uh history universal um knowledge that was that was capable of being discovered through you know discovering god's secrets you know there's one rational god that created the universe his son was jesus christ and you know so on and so forth and the other conceptions, theological conceptions of the universe, were in, were not completely incompa- uh, incompatible, but they were like for, you know, just for example, in Islam, they they couldn't they didn't get a chance to create the institutions of science, even though of so much of, of uh, Copernicus's. Uh, uh, data, just the raw data and mathematical theories and all the theorizing about the, the heliocentric universe was there. And he, he got it from the Arabs, but they didn't create the si- science in the same way. They weren't able to make that, that leap forward because of theological commitments to, you know, the, basically, you know, a geocentric closed system that if, and, you know, if you were to be caught practicing science, what was at the time called foreign sciences, they weren't, they weren't the natural sciences, they were the foreign sciences, you were at risk of being seen as impious. And if you were impious, then obviously you're, you know, that's a huge mark against you in, in very strict Islamic societies. Um, he has similar arguments for China, but the the point remains is that he are, is arguing that the theological view of Christianity made it so that there was an emphasis on freedom. And so then that freedom manifested not only in the political freedom, but in free markets. And he cites the the works of, you know, like St. Albert Magnus, um, who, who was writing about free market rates of interest and whether or not they were, you know, they, you should, you are a sinner if you were practicing usury and, you know, all of these different um, ideas of what it meant to to come into commerce into the world and w- whether or not people should be free when they do it and it was very much Christian morality that said yes people should be free as long as they're not um, you know hurting one another and they're or they're not enslaving one another they should be free to to uh, participate in the market at their own you know leisure and and you know science was another aspect the freedom political freedom was you know you couldn't have capitalism without political freedom and it was the Christ, the catholic church that was a main you know uh voice for it but he doesn't argue in the book that it was all you know just the christian church came in and then everything was hunky dory mm-hmm. basically what i'm getting from it and he doesn't say it explicitly but i this is the way i i'm seeing it is that you have to divorce this belief system, like this thought center, basically, from the nuts and bolts reality. Like in some places, it was able to manifest more fully, you know, as long as people were, the conditions were right. If the conditions were right, there was at least some amount of freedom, and they were, you know, inculcated in a Christian atmosphere. There was good, the geography was right. They could trade and they had the, the ability to create the institutions. Then they did. But in other areas, like for example, you mentioned, you know, the inquisition and the Spanish empire, obviously that was a very Christian society in quotes, but it didn't, it didn't, um, it failed miserably because, you know, it was basically just living off the loots of other parts of the world off of its empire. And it wasn't implementing these innovations 
that other you know countries were were implementing just because it could live high on the hog and and get away with it but the problem is is that you know like i guess what you'd say is was that real christianity <laughs> were they were that they practicing real christianity? real christianity and you know I, I so i i still i take it the hypothesis as a hypothesis but he puts mm-hmm. forth a very good argument um, for it, even though it's not, oh, it's not a hundred percent, you know, you can't just say, well, since I believe in Christianity, then I'm a scientist. You know, it's not that it's more that this, this moral matrix that, that was, that's in Christianity was compatible with all of these different things. And in fact, incentivized all of them in a way that like, you know, Jordan Peterson would say was like this, that was the star above the horizon that everybody could focus on. And as a society, you know, you had this guiding value, this very complex, but like intricate and attractive moral system Mm -hmm. that, that told you that suffering had been overcome, you know, evil had been conquered. You have life in heaven, you know, you, you can your sin can be forgiven if you if you if you know if you want to but you have individual responsibility to go out and to make the world a better place and that it, that led in and of itself to that you know what he would say is that protestant ethic which you know there obviously there weren't any protestants at the time but they they that was the ethic that early christians had Mm-hmm. especially in in monasteries he points out that in the catholic church they had they owned so much land and there was you know all of these monastic estates developed and they they weren't like you know your average monk who wanted to go and retire and meditate and and of get away from work and they were also weren't like the greco-roman elite who hated you know who who hated work you know the very the basic ethic of the greco-romans was that if you had to work you were you know, lowly on the level of a slave, but rather for these Christians, the monks in these early Christian communities, you know, work was your duty. It was, if you avoided work, then you risked become, you know, being sinful, obviously idle hands are the devil's plaything or workshop or whatever that saying is. And so they went to work literally every day and conscientiously developed large estates where they could grow, uh, and sell wine they could you know different supplies they would they would look for new innovative technologies in, in order to increase their production they would sell they created huge fish ponds because they weren't allowed to eat meat a lot of them so they'd create huge fish ponds and and farm the fish and sell it to the local communities and it got to the point where they were so wealthy that then they started hiring people from outside of the community to come and work for them and they 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 became uber capitalist firms because they had to manage a workforce they had to think about how to use the capital from every year in order to increase their their worth and yet they were distinctly christian they had a distinct christian mindset you know just like any christian monk would have but they were just frugal you know mm-hmm. just uber frugal christian capitalists uber frugal (laughs) well it it kind of reminds me a little bit of just the family unit and and uh how these these monks who worked on the estate had through christianity this social cohesion um you know they were all kind of on board with each other uh thought you know in in a similar way about similar things uh were constructive uh reached out to the community um, and, and basically lived and fulfilled, uh, useful lives where, you know, outside of that kind of structure, you, you had, I guess, royalty and serfdom and, and all of these, uh, variants of, uh, of, of slavery and, and other types of things going on in Europe in the, um, in the last few hundred years. Um, so it seems that as though there is this kind of, uh, you know, an outgrowth of innovation that 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 the you know these these monks and and groups of of the religious were able to uh, build on. Well, so it sounds to me like uh, um, <clears throat> coming back to my question that uh, that within the the Christian kind of worldview that there were several ideas that were. It basically went really well together and allowed for a lot of things to happen. Um, I want to read another quote from 
Whitehead. This is from uh, The Function of Reason. This was published uh, 1929, actually, so four years after that quote you read earlier, uh, Corey. So this is, well, I'll just read this paragraph. All things work between limits. This law applies even to the speculative reason. He's talking about reason. Uh, he's distinguishing, distinguishing between basically theoretical reason and practical reason. So like the coming up with methodologies and things that work and, and uh, like methods that work. And then this more speculative theoretical reason, which comes up with the, the kind of the bigger framework where all the pieces fit together. So this would be like what I was talking about earlier in the kind of like the Greek philosophy, Greek philosophical tradition. So he says the understanding of a civilization is the understanding of its limits. The penetration of the generations from the 13th to the 17th centuries worked within the limits of the ideas provided by scholasticism. So this would be like Thomas Aquinas and kind of the traditional um, like Christian theology and, and philosophy. These five, these five centuries represent a period of the broadening of interests rather than a period of intellectual growth. Scholasticism had exhausted its possibilities. It had provided a capital of fundamental ideas and it had wearied mankind in its efforts to provide a final dogmatic system by the method of meditating on those ideas. New concepts crept in, slowly at first, and finally like an avalanche. Greek literature, Greek art, Greek mathematics, Greek science. The men of the Renaissance wore their learning more lightly than did the scholastics. They tempered it with the joy of direct experience. Thus, another ancient secret was discovered. A secret never wholly lost, but sadly in the background among the learned section of the medievals. The habit of looking for oneself, the habit of observation. So he's basically talking about the rise of science here, too. And he's basically saying that, uh, well, later on he says on the next page, just to give some background on scholasticism, um, he's not saying it was a bad thing. Because like, the way he talks about scholastics was basically they were, they were trying to come up with, just like the Greeks were, like a system of of undoubtable um, premises from which to, to come with everything else. So the, these, these really crystal clear concepts like you see in Thomas Aquinas where everything fits together logically. And then that's just a complete description of the world. There's nowhere else to go from that. It's just, well, here's, here's the world and it, and it all makes sense and we, we know it 100% with 100% certainty. And Whitehead's basically saying, well, that's, that does, that's not actually the way it works, and that's, that can't be correct. Like, there can be no dogmatism in speculative philosophy. It's always, there should always be, like, the, the, the desire for something better, for a better understanding, and that's always possible because we can never have a complete understanding. So, um, so he's saying that was the problem with scholasticism was it's basically, basically it's dogmatism, and because they, they basically exhausted their, their possibilities using this, this, this dogmatic system. It's like, well, it's already all there. We already know everything. And he says that's essentially why they didn't, they didn't develop over those five centuries very much. But he, then he says that the re, the, it was the recasting of the medieval ideas so as to form the foundation uh, of modern sciences, which was one of the intellectual triumphs of the world. So, again, this was also within you know, the, the Christian tradition, but there, it was like the, something was going along in a certain way, but then another element got added in. So you had scholasticism, you had the theology, and it, it allowed for the, like the birth of this science, but it needed an, an injection of something new, you know, something novel, that, that, that kind of um, that, that lack of satisfaction, right? Because the, the, the scholasticism could be termed like uh, satisfaction in the, in the way we were talking about it on, on the show we did on happiness. It's like, okay, it was complete. It was done. But, you know, you need to inject a bit of dissatisfaction in there. It's like, well, no, it's like there's more to it. Um, and so it got out of the realm of the scholastic dogma to, like he said, like the direct observation. And that's where the, the new, uh, that's what allowed for like the, the, the birth of, of science, you know, as we know it now, that whereas previously it wasn't there, it was that it was that empiricism that that oh well, I'm going to verify these things for myself. I can I can observe that, and so then well, so he talks about how that developed with like Newton and uh, and people like that, and then the, the problems there too. But um, so just to to kind of summarize and and bring together the points that I've you know that I've been trying to make is that that there that what what the whole Christian system did was provide for, basically provided the raw material for, for a lot of things to grow up out of the Christian tra tradition. It wasn't necessarily that the, necessarily that they were there 
in essence, like in, and in essence within the system, it's, it's not like, it's not, it's not like you convert to Christianity and, and therefore you all of a sudden become a great scientist. Like you said, Corey, it's like, but the, it, it, oh, it creates the possibilities for those things to develop. And it did create those possibilities. So what we saw was that, you know, through, through these ideas of like the, through, through the universal idea of like every person as, as having free will and being, being responsible for their own, well, partially responsible for their own salvation. You know, it, it, you do have to put some effort into not sinning. But also the the fact that everyone is potentially um, uh, a, like a brother or sister, essentially, and then so you have these ideas of freedom and like openness and and this poss- these possibilities for 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 new things to enter into like uh, into the individual and in, into the the community into into the mental life of of the like the wider community. So you have the the allowance for development of things like like a like a free free exchanges and like free market and for like uh like more like moral philosophy and and for um a view of nature that's that sees it as inherently ordered like the greeks saw it um but but then with this added um like impulse to to observe and test um again you could bring this back to freedom with the like the, the freedom to 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 see order and to understand order because of the the divinity which is in, which is in everyone you have all of these things then allow for the developments of like science and uh and economic systems and and kind of like um liberation type um like movements and um like within the like with the system of slavery for instance and it's just that the it's so it seems to me that all of these things were kind of like um made possible mm-hmm. by it not necessarily because they're they were exclusively like you know um christian ideas or exclusively you know within christianity it's just that it was like a uh, uh, a convenient marriage of a whole bunch of different ideas that allowed these things to happen yeah i i think i'd have i'd have to agree in some sense but i also i can't think of it as just being convenience um that's just you know just my my sense of maybe that's just my own you know moral taste bud for you know, the the sacred is that there just seems to be um, just a, a a way in which Christianity, like you said, it's it made the it was compatible. These ideals were compatible with a lot of things, but I also think that these ideals in and of themselves have a, a separate existence. You know, so it's not just like that, that it was a convenience, but it's more like when people connect with certain ideals then that this is the kind those are the kinds of things that become available that's the kind of future that opens up for for humans is that if when you connect with ideals like free will personal responsibility uh questioning constant questioning and an an openness to to you know rethink you know previous previously held theological beliefs you know like for instance that you know saint paul said that slavery is okay but then theologians were like well we we used our reason and we're we're going to reason that actually it's not okay to enslave a, a fellow christian so you know the, this openness to to use reason and to follow this what previously was just a, like a stoic path reserved just for a few and but now opening it up for all of society when you follow these kinds of ideals then science freedom those are the those are the kinds of things that that you see and you know obviously when if uh when you look at history you know just you know blind collectivism tribalism and many, many different things that have been tried those kinds of ideals it turns out they're not as conducive um to to such pursuits so just looking at it like i i agree with everything that you're saying and um just wanted to add that that i don't think it's just convenience but rather a fundamental part of nature that we have we don't really grapple with we haven't really had the maturity i guess to grapple with as um, you know, as a society, obviously on the show, we've talked about the independent state of the mind quite a bit, but that, yes, mind is important. Beliefs are important. Beliefs can be pathogenic or they can open you up to unlimited possibilities. And, you know, like you, you have to watch out for them. <laughs> well, I would just like to add that, um, you know, Stark may have been anticipating some of the kind of nihilistic tendencies of Western culture when he wrote this book. 
uh, I think that he kind of saw a place where his understanding uh, would would fill in the the lack of understanding of Christianity's value to Western civilization. And um, I could agree with you as well, Harrison, that um, that it it's not necessarily so much Christianity per se that uh, is responsible for many of uh, the accomplishments in science and theology and humanity of Western civilization, but that, it, you know, it, it was the firmament of it in, in some ways. It created the, the possibility um, for its uh, fruition in, in many areas. And um, I, think, I think it's safe to say that Stark was, uh, you know, in, in presenting this information with his book, was was trying to make the point um, that Christianity definitely has a place in some of the most valuable developments of Western civilization, and we don't have to go whole hog necessarily and and reduce it to uh, only Christianity as as one of the most you know the the, the brightest or the best feature of Western civilization but that it has its place. And um, along those lines, Corey, at the top of the show, you mentioned the uh, fire at uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I just wanted to take a moment here to uh, kind of recap some of the major stories that we've been looking at for the past year or two, uh, ramping up in the last six months, uh, just to give a kind of overall picture of some of the developments that have, um, I think, are, are worthy of raising some eyebrows in terms of uh, the uh, persecution of, if not Christianity, then, then perhaps the, the culture or the traditions of Christianity in Western civilization over the past uh, however many months or years. Um, so, few things. One, we've been we've been seeing that it's it hasn't just been Notre Dame that has been desecrated by fire, and there is there is uh, much information that's come out to suggest that this was no random accident. Um, there has been a pattern of vandalism and fires uh, all across France, dozens of them over the past few months in particular, uh, which should give one pause. Uh, we had the the terrorism in Sri Lanka, that uh, the the eight bombs that uh, went off in both churches and hotels that have killed over three hundred and injured another five hundred. Um, we have uh, you know acts on universities where in universities where individuals who are just uh, kind of handing out Christian literature are being asked to stop because some are finding it offensive. We have uh, Barack Obama and, uh, and Hillary Clinton, you know, tweeting sympathetic uh, tweets uh, in, in, um, in kind of sympathy with uh, Muslims who, who were killed in, in, uh, in the Christchurch terror. But when it's, uh, when it's the Christians in, in, uh, in Sri Lanka, it's, Easter worshipers, they can't even bring themselves or they're being scripted and told to present this information in a certain way and, and say, we have sympathies with the Easter worshipers, not the Christians. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, and, you know, there, there's this whole, um, this whole kind of uh, schism uh, in Ukraine with the, with the Orthodox church there trying to split off from what is a, uh, a many hundreds of years old um, connection to uh, the Orthodox Church of Russia. Uh, and some are com comparing this to the, the schism of the 11th century. Um, so there's this kind of social, political, religious uh, attack um, on if not the symbols of Christianity, then, then Christianity itself, in, and it's global, and it's all happening at the same time. Um, and last but not least, I mean, 
some people kind of see the uh, the the radical left, uh, postmodern, nihilistic um, attacks on you know the, the Constitution in the U.S. Uh, and the the Christian values uh, that uh, the U.S. Re- was founded on um, as a kind of a sideways attack on Christianity and Christian values itself. So we're, we're seeing all of these things happening at the same time. And, um, and I, I, I think it's multifaceted. I think there are geopolitical dimensions to it. I think that there are social uh, dimensions to it in the form of a, a kind of social contagion of people who have, who have only uh, defined Christianity in terms of its, uh, its worst ills. But um, it doesn't bode well uh, for um, those those values and those morals and, and traditions that have been constructive for the Western world when it seems to be uh, under attack uh, in all these different dimensions. Well, yeah, thank you very much for that that recap there, Elon. That was I think that's really important to keep in mind is is uh, how Christian ideals are under attack. And I think we're going to wrap the, the show up. And before I do, I just wanted to re- read one uh, paragraph from, uh, from an article on Vridar that I think really strips, uh, you know, these Christian values down to their, their core so that, you know, even if you don't like Christianity, you, you hate it, you grew up Catholic and you hated the institution, um, we can all kind of share in what, this, what the values really are. This is what he writes. This is what made the Christian gospel something familiar and alluring, even captivating for the masses of people of the Roman world. It was a story they had heard long before and had learned to admire and respect. Stories of endurance, of suffering, and courage in the face of overwhelming fate had prepared them to hear the same story again, but now one in which they themselves were included in a new way. They themselves were invited to participate individually as protagonists and main characters. In the Christian story, each individual was required to repeat the story of the captain, to take up his or her own cross, and follow to the end of life, whatever that end might be. So on that note, take up that cross and bear it. Clean your room. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening in, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again next time. All right. See you, everyone. Bye.